Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of Greater Than Code. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm excited to be here today with our guest, Robert DeLuca. Rob has been contributing to open source for almost as long as he has been writing code, but now he doesn't get to write code very much anymore because he's president at Frontside, which is a UI consultancy very concerned with accessibility. Rob enjoys designing great JavaScript-powered user experiences by crafting them in lots of C's and S's and ensuring their accessibility. In his spare time, which he may or may not have any of anymore, you can find Rob hanging out by the pool with his wife and dog. He also likes home automation and college football. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. That was that was an excellent intro. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> now comes the hard part. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Ooh, so I actually I gave some thought over the weekend of this. And being uh, facetious, I would say my superpower would be uh, anxiety and to worry about everything. But in reality, I think if I had to give a serious answer, it would be ambition. And I don't know how exactly I required that. But while I was a cook at Sonic uh, flipping burgers, I had a manager that would always yell at me, just just singled me out and yelled at me. Uh, It was not a fun experience. So there are many times where I came home from work at like midnight and sent off like 30 emails to all of the, the design agencies and web agencies that were in Fort Myers, Florida at the time. And uh, eventually one of them responded to me and was like, hey, we love your ambition. We can't hire you, but let's see if we can work something out in the future. And eventually it did. And it's always just been like me trying to push myself in a direction that I don't quite feel comfortable in, but want to get to. And if I had to say that's my superpower, then I guess that'd be it. So you worry about everything and you also want to change things and you do stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I worry about the change, and then I go do the change. Yeah, I also noted that you talk about the thing, like seeing the thing that you're not quite comfortable doing, but going after it anyway, and that's a really interesting framing on that. Yeah, I feel like if I'm not doing something that makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, am I actually pushing myself? Right? Like, am I am I doing something that will make me a better person? Will make somebody around me better or am I am, will will I change the status quo that I currently have and you know status quo isn't bad but am I am I improving anything um I'm like trying really hard not to veer off into the cliche tech world like am I making the world a better place but I mean that kind of underlines like what I want to achieve and set out to do is like am I am I making things better for people including yourself yes absolutely self-care is something that I, I care a lot about. It's something that I learned at one of my first startup gigs. Uh, I worked like 80 hour weeks for three months straight, kind of torched my relationship with my now wife at the time. I didn't like really gain anything from it. And it was a, it was what my dad calls a, it was a tuition payment. It was a learning experience and you paid, you paid through uh, doing it yourself and not actually with money. Right. <laughs> well, at least it was only three months. Yeah, three months from from December to March, basically. Burned into your mind. <laughs> Not right. long enough for the uh, the long term health impacts and the long term psychological and relationship impacts to really kick in. So good, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was right on the cusp, and and I'm happy I ended up catching it. We we ended up shipping the thing that we needed to, and the thing that actually I think really clicked for me was like we shipped, and I was expecting like this. Ah, moment where we feel good. And 
that never came. Like I never felt the satisfaction from the amount of work that I put in and then uh, what I traded off in that experience, um, which then from there, it made me realize I wanted to seek out a work environment that suited me. And that's kind of how I ended up landing at the front side. Charles and Brandon at the time built a really human company that cared about the people that worked there. And that was something that really attracted me and, and was interesting. Yeah, sometimes you have to see have that experience of, of what you don't want to really bring clarity to what you do want. And you can clarify exactly what it is you're looking for at that point. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really nice to learn that early in my career rather than much further down the line <laughs> where it could have had catastrophic uh, implications. <laughs> Certainly. So I know one of the things that, that you focus on at Frontside and or that Frontside in general focuses on is is accessibility on, I'm assuming on the web. I assume you're building a lot of things for the web. And so I'm really interested to hear you talk about that. Right. Yeah. So to give a little bit of back history, um, I worked at the Frontside for two years and then I left and went to Visa and I worked at Visa to lead the Visa Checkout team for accessibility. Uh, and from there, I learned a lot of managing teams and doing those things, but I still missed the things that the front side provided, which was like that really human aspect. So I went back and um, we've since had a, a big focus on accessibility. Uh, when I worked at the front side before, I, I made sure that everything that I, I built for clients was accessible, but I wasn't having the high level conversations of like, are we having audits? Are we going to reach WCAG 2.1 AA standards? What are we even trying to strive for here? Wait, wait, you're going to what? What's a WCAG? <laughs> uh, web. So what CAG stands for Web Constant Accessibility Guidelines, um, and then it's the versioning number beyond that. Uh, so 2.1 is actually the most recent one that was an officially recognized standard by the the Web Guideline Setters, the W3C. <laughs> Trying to think of what that actually means, like unpack the acronym Worldwide Web Consortium. I think. <laughs> yeah, Web Consortium, something like that. Consortium. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's right. Like we weren't having those those big conversations that needed to happen for our client projects. And when I came back, that's kind of the thing that I injected in ever since. And we've been thinking about accessibility from the start rather than like at the end, we finish the product and we're like, okay, what do we need to do to make this thing accessible? Let's run this quick checker over the top of the website and make sure that it works. And it turns out building websites like that doesn't work. It creates a lot of a lot of extra work for you and your team because accessibility actually influences great design. And when I try to explain to people things about accessibility, the spec, the the WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, that really is just a, U, a set of UX guidelines for you, a set of user experience guidelines. I'm going to try and unpack these uh, acronyms. But it it really is just all about like how do I implement a really nice interface for say an autocomplete or an accordion widget or a date picker. It tells you how the user should interact with it regardless of the platform they're on, regardless if it's a smartphone, regardless if they're using a switch, if they're using a screen reader, if they're using speech dictation. It cuts through all of that and gives you the best guidelines for interacting with it. And that's what I'm trying to bring to the table <laughs> and, and build into every app that we build. Ooh, so it's like reactive is a lot more than the size of the screen. Exactly. Exactly. I like that quote. <laughs> Yay, I just made it up. 
I like that perspective because I, you know, I've heard the, the, the saying that designing for accessibility is just doing good design. Um, but having uh, the specific for a turn you put on it where the, like the WCAG recommendations specifically talk about interacting with specific, you know, items on, on the page or the widgets, you know, regardless of platform and that those interactions can be seen as the sort of primary driver for what the thing is going to do, regardless of whether you, it's going to be accessible or not, is a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think makes it clearer to me, at least, you know, like more specific benefits of how it influences the good design and the good UX. Right. Yeah. It, it took, it took me a little while to come around to that. And it was actually in, wasn't until I started to try and really digest the changes in WCAG 2.1 from 2.0, where they introduced, I think, like 17 new success criterion. And when I started to digest that, I, it became clear that it was like, whoa, these really are kind of just UX guidelines. How, how can I build the best user experience regardless of who is using it? And I think that's at the core what user experience is, right? And it also kind of speaks to why people get frustrated with accessibility because there is no right answer to any given situation. And that's kind of why we can't have uh, automated testing for accessibility is because you can't have automated testing for UX. It's very contextual based, right? You, It's up to the person that's implementing it and the situation that the user might find themselves in. It's really hard to automate that and some computer be able to tell you in a binary fashion, yes or no, this works. Yeah, that whole context thing, the part where we evaluate something in a particular context and and with a particular past of how we just got there and what we're thinking, that the humans are really good at that and computers are really terrible. That is spot on, yes. It's interesting because your context varies between your abilities and what you're using, right? If you're on a mobile device, you might have way less context than, say, a desktop user would because they might see a couple of different buttons or a field or a form over to the right uh, that they wouldn't see on mobile, and that allows them to gain context. So like when I'm telling people to help them test for accessibility on their site, I like for them to turn off their screen when they're using a screen reader because you subconsciously cheat when you have your, your screen on and you're using the screen reader because you are watching the cursor move across the screen you're looking to the next thing that you know you're going to hit, which gives you that context. But if you turn your screen off and listen to only what the screen reader is telling you, that's the true context that that user is getting. That is all the information that they have access to. And even when you have the screen on, you can start to, to figure out, hey, I have this column and it's laid out in this hierarchy. I know what to expect here. But if that hierarchy actually doesn't make sense, and like in a real sense with a screen reader and like the DOM is actually all kinds of out of order and we just have a bunch of really cool CSS files to make it look like it has a hierarchy, <laughs> it starts to fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that feeds into the sort of idea of semantic markup, which isn't something people talk about a lot these days. It was hot maybe 10 years ago. But if when you think about it from the structure that the screen reader is going to look at and how it's going to present the information, all of a sudden that becomes very much more important. It's not just because the human that happens to be coding it can understand it a little bit better. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. Whenever I was starting off on the web and I was told, you should test your app 
whatever you're building, your website, whatever it might be, turn off the CSS styles and see if it still makes sense. And I always thought that was such a weird suggestion. And I always thought it was just like, hey, make sure it, it lays out properly. But now, it, I always thought it came from like, people are going to be visiting your site without CSS enabled. Make sure it still makes sense without CSS enabled. And I was like, well, how many people are actually browsing the web with CSS disabled? Because that's a choice. Right. And it, it was it was a completely wrong angle to kind of look at that. And I was just kind of writing it off because I was like, nah, it's going to be a, a really small percentage of people that use the web without CSS enabled, right? But it's not about that. It's about checking to see if your hierarchy is right. It's about making sure your information design makes sense. Does your page really tell a story? Right, right. I'm, I'm starting to write some conference talks and stuff too. So like, it's all about telling the right story and making sure you get to the core of what the person that is visiting your site or in a conference talk is watching your talk understands what you're trying to get across and feels that if you're trying to tell a, a story or fix a problem, you want to make sure that that, that problem comes across clear before you, you give a solution, right? So Because that's the context. Yes, yes. You got to make sure they're on the same page with you. And it, it kind of can boil down to like good communication, right? But good communication is very hard. <laughs> oh, it totally is. Because communication depends on both what's going on in your head as the sender and what's going on in everyone else's head as the receiver. Yes. I don't know if you think about it like that in, in your head when you just said it, but when you said it and I thought about it, it was very much seemed like a API. Like I'm sending a message, then I'm receiving a message. And does this handshake make sense? <laughs> I have a conference talk called Your Emotional API, where I model emotional reactions as an API. That is amazing. And I'm going to have to go watch that after this. <laughs> it, you learn a lot of interesting things by just putting that completely artificial model on on that sort of interaction, it, it just highlights different aspects of it that make it easier to talk about certain things. Oh, yeah. So that's a useful metaphor. It's also a good metaphor in the sense that the best metaphors are the ones that are obviously wrong. So you don't try to take them too far. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I, I am guilty of trying to take metaphors too far <laughs> and bend them. Like, hmm, this doesn't line up anymore. <laughs> I like I like that uh, thinking about like the human API though because it kind of gives all developers somewhat of a common language to kind of start thinking about these things and framing them around that, which is really helpful, right? I think every programmer needs to think about this. Yeah, we need to think about these things that we can't automate testing for uh, because automated testing it like it lets us test the things that that never change under you know with this input the API response with this output kind of thing. But those are only the edges of what we're building. And when you when you do UX testing, you're you're testing the the meaty middle of how people really experience it. And then when you do accessibility, when you're like, okay, what if you can't see the site at all? Then you're taking it to another level and that teaches you all kinds of things about how good your design really is. Right. And if it doesn't hold up when you put it through many different mediums to consume it through. Oh, that sounds so hard. <laughs> it's very hard, but it's not impossible, right? Like we solve as engineers, like really hard problems. And that's that's kind of the approach that I've been trying to take and, and teach accessibility to people is I view it as just yet another engineering problem. I see accessibility and infinite scroll 
as two of the same, really. Like they're both problems that I need to solve, and they're both things that require a lot of thought and discipline to get through. But it's achievable, and you can do it. You just have to. You have to be explicit about it, right? Because if you treat it like it's easy, like I'm just going to make this infinite scroll, then you're going to do it really badly and it's going to make everything worse. And please don't try. <laughs> right? Like putting a footer at the bottom of the infinite scroll so you can never click the link. <laughs> well, I mean, that's also really interesting framing of the question because I think with a lot of these sort of people problems, these hard, like I consider them hard problems. We tend to think of them as, oh, that's a hard problem. And we tend to think that there may not be a solution, or if there is, it's really hard to get to. Whereas with engineering, it's like, oh, I need to orchestrate 50,000 servers and make sure that they're all coordinated, blah, blah, blah. Well, someone solved that problem. They invented Kubernetes and, you know, they put a lot of thought into it and they did all the work, but they, it's a solvable problem. And they probably realized it was solvable from the beginning. Whereas with the, these squishier problems, we tend to think, oh, maybe I'll never come up with a solution to this. Maybe I won't even bother trying to get better at this because how would you even do that? Right, right. And that actually brings me to something that I I made the realization in, I don't know, about two, three years ago. But in high school, like you talked about the squishier problems, right? And engineers kind of like stay away from those. I I think when I was going through learning how to build websites and like what I wanted to do in high school. I was really into my digital design class. Shout out Miss McDaniel, uh, if she's listening. <laughs> I really loved design. I really loved anything technology and I wanted to be a designer. And then I, I got two years through and I wasn't the best designer, I'll admit. <laughs> and I wanted to get out of it because I thought things were just too subjective. It was just, it was squishy, right? Somebody could look at it and be like, yeah, that's ugly. And somebody else could look at that and be like, hmm. I actually really like this. I was like, I want to do something that's more uh, solid, something that you can't have that reaction to. I was like, I'll do programming, right? It's closer to science. It's binary. True or false? No, no, not at all. I did not run away from that. I just, I moved it to a different place. And it's, it's in your inner team communication. And it's in some of the harder problems that we actually kind of stay away from that has those squishy problems. Um, and I, I think if, if every engineer kind of looked at those in the face, and just try to attack them, everything would be a lot better. We would work better as teams. We would get along better. Uh, we would make more progress in, in other areas. Totally. Yes. It's almost like with stuff like Kubernetes and APIs in general, the more of these we have, the more of the problems that were a lot of work have been abstracted away and solved for us. But that leaves us with the actual hard problem, which is, what is correct? Because that's what I thought too when I started programming. I'm like, oh, you can define what is right. The program works or it doesn't. That's totally not true. As soon <laughs> right. as you get past the problems that are a lot of work, or maybe they're like mathematically hard or like hard to get good performance on, and that's a fun puzzle, and I'm glad other people are solving it because now I'm, I'm less reluctant to move to the hard problems, which are the contextual ones, which are there is no correct what is best in this circumstance for these people? That is an excellent way to frame it. You did a way better job than me. <laughs> it's interesting. Before I forget, Rob, can you tell us how you got so excited about accessibility? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my mom is 100% blind. Um, I grew up watching her 
uh, struggle through just, you know, daily tasks that everybody would have to do. She went blind a year after I was born. So I have a full experience of her being blind. I don't know her any other way. And um, that's not true for my siblings. My siblings, they got driven to cheerleading practice by her. Uh, I never got to experience that. In 2010, she called it her like renaissance year. She like I was of age, like she didn't have to really care for like doing, you know, a lot of mom things. Um, and she had some more time. So she went back to school and she got trained on the computer. And I got to watch her struggle through trying to do simple things like pay a credit card bill or um, and I, I say simple, right, with air quotes, because it's it's not really simple. It's simple for you and I, but people that don't have the experience of, of doing that for a lot <laughs> or a lot of times, it's it's pretty hard. And I just got to, to watch her struggle through all of those things. And that really made me want to make a web that she could use, that she wouldn't have to struggle through. She wouldn't have to get frustrated with. I, I've, I watched her get frustrated trying to do something and just slam her laptop shut. And that sucks to watch. She's more polite than I am when I get mad at the computer. I mean, there are some obscene, obscene things said and, and <laughs> you know, whatnot. I'll, every once in a while, I'll get a, a, a angry, ranty text about some website that's doing something wrong where it's like doing focus dealing or, or bad focus management. Focus wedding? Focus management. No, the, the one before that. Focus stealing. Oh, I think you said stealing. Oh, focus stealing. Yes. Ooh, that is yeah. it. Yeah. And it's because I'm assuming, right, uh, from what I've seen a lot of the times is, is teams don't know that the focus is something that's actually critical to these users. And it's something that you actually have to manage if you're doing, especially with single page apps. Single page apps are actually the worst defenders for these because on a server side app, when you click a link, you're going to get a whole new server rendered page that re-renders everything. And the screen reader knows, screen reader and browser know what to do with that. But with single page apps, you click a link and only that sub piece of the page changes and nothing is conveyed to the screen reader user. So you have to manage that focus. And when it's done wrong, it's really unsettling and really confusing, right? Like going back, like this is all about uh, somebody who is blind, but like this also applies to those who use switches or uh, use Dragon Naturally Speaking for dictation and navigating that way. That's all the context you have, what's being told to you. It's really confusing when it's just flipping between five different things in a matter of five seconds, right? Like you can't catch what's going on. Yeah. And, and then it's a tiny bit frustrating for anybody. Right. But yeah. Like that manifests as like, oh man, when I type in this input, it loses, it, like it jumps out of focus every five keystrokes. Why does that happen? And you just reclick the field and it's just a minor bug. But for somebody that's using assistive tech, like that's, that's an experience breaking thing. That's something that stops them in their track. And in some ways, I mean, if you treat accessibility this way, you could treat that information of this is not acceptable as a gift because if, if you really want your website to be great, then you have the gift of one gigantic problem for a particular user that also represents a little bitty problem for millions and millions of users. So the, the, the benefits of caring about the screen readers and the people for whom this is a big problem is much, much larger than just those people. Yeah, this goes back to a theme that I keep noticing, and at least in the episodes of, of this podcast that I've been on, which is when you treat the edge cases better, the exceptions, the, the weird little situations, when you handle those properly, it gets better for everybody. 
the folks on the happy path in the middle also get a better experience and that it's just a, a great philosophy for making everybody better. Exactly. That is, that is so true. When you, when you have to think about your, your website's experience through the lens of accessibility, it makes you kind of boil down and distill what exactly you're trying to achieve in that workflow. Like, is this person signing up to our website? Let's get rid of all the things that might be really confusing or just kind of throw you off on context. And it makes you just boil it down to the best experience that you can possibly provide. And it benefits everybody. And when we refactor things at the front side for our clients to be more accessible, I'm willing to say 10 times out of 10, the experience gets better for everybody. It just becomes better for a power user. It becomes better for the person that was actually fighting the change that they didn't want to see like this refactor happen. And it, it just, I don't know how else to say it other than like, it really just makes everything so much easier and nicer to work with because you've just, you've boiled it down and you've simplified the problem. Yeah. And that helps you define correct and it helps you prioritize and it helps you solve the problems that really matter. It makes you think about things that matter. Like, can you fill in this form and submit rather than does this cute animation at the top properly do the thing that I wanted to do when I go through the field? Like that's, that's neat polish. Um, but if it actually that thing is stealing focus and if a screener goes over the top of it and it's this weird shape that they can't understand, then it's, it's a detriment rather than an ad. Yeah, that's definitely a gift if it helps you focus on what's, what really matters instead of getting distracted by yeah, distracting visual elements. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I'm still thinking about your characterization of the WCAG recommendations as, you know, just good UX guidelines. Because, you know, I've been to a number of different presentations about accessibility and ways that you can use it to improve your site, blah, 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 all sorts of stuff like that. But every single one of them sort of dives deep, deep, deep into the details of, well, put alt text on your images and, you know, do these things and do these really low level technical things. And so it frames the problem for me of, oh, it's just a matter of, of adding more technical detail into these individual elements. And to me, that also that seems it's difficult. And like when you imagine an entire site that's been built up over the last 10 years, you know, there's hundreds of pages and like the, the thought of trying to go through and make that all accessible is really daunting. But if you instead talk about it as, well, these are these great UX guidelines. If you just start there, then all the other stuff sort of flows in automatically. All of a sudden, that seems like something I really want to work on because it has all these other benefits that we've been talking about here. You know, it helps everything for everyone. But it, it's almost like a, a marketing problem for the WCAG because it's like, if you think of it as just this list of, you know, add little this thing to your thing and don't put these elements inside these other elements, then it doesn't sound interesting and it doesn't sound like it improves things except for, you know, a very small number of people versus well, no, we can just use this as general UX guidelines. Let's all get behind that and 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 run from in that direction. Right. Yeah. Like it kind of gets that that weird pigeonhole where it's like, oh yeah, this is only for those people, and the guidelines are kind of just prescribing you what you need to do to make those people uh, satisfied. Right. And I, I don't I don't see it as that at all. I do think that reading the spec is very difficult, and it took me like seven or eight 
thousand false starts, <laughs> uh, if I had to exaggerate, to start reading it. But once when I did and, and digested it a little bit, it was really nice to see that like a lot of the patterns that I was doing on the web and like building were thought out and thought out better by them than I had thought out, right? And I was able to just kind of offload that kind of thinking and go the, the extra mile. Like I didn't have to think about how I needed to interact with a type ahead. They tell me how it should properly work, right? Like I should type in and it should have a set number of results. I should be able to use these keys to navigate the list. I should be able to use spacebar or enter to activate the selected item. I should be able to use the home or end keys to go to the first item or the last item. Like these are all interactions that I might have accidentally discovered that I needed as I started to go through and test and realize like maybe not even like the home and end one, I probably wouldn't even implement it because to be honest, I use a Mac that has a wireless keyboard that doesn't have home or end on it. And it just wouldn't occur to me to, to implement that. And just by looking at those guidelines and seeing them as like UX suggestions has really helped me just stop thinking about those things and actually work on the important part of the UI. So the spec acts as kind of a design patterns driven by accessibility that can help you define correct for components of your application that are not your business process, but are an important part of the user experience. Right. Yeah. And I would love to be able to have something that sits in the middle. Uh, we're not there yet, but I would like to have like exactly what you just said, a, a design patterns abstraction, I guess, of, of the, the WCAG spec. I want something that's not super specy, but something that is kind of distilled into more digestible terms and things that is easier to read for everybody. Yeah. When you read it, you have like this perspective of having been doing this for a while. And so when you read those details, you can kind of fill in the why of each of them and see how they connect to each other and to people. I noticed this... Um, I, I'm using TypeScript now and I've been using it for about a year. And when I started using a language, I like looked at the TypeScript language spec a little, but it started with, this is an addendum to the ECMAScript spec. TypeScript spec is a hundred something pages. The ECMAScript spec is like 800. And I was just like, no. And I put it down. But now, <laughs> now I can go back and, and I am reading the TypeScript spec. And now I'm like, oh, okay, now I see the why behind this. And I can fill in the useful bits that the spec can't really give to me. So, so yeah, you need another bit about here's the spec, but with the whys filled in. And you can reference the real thing for the nitty gritty if you need to. Yes, that is so spot on. So spot on, yeah. yeah like, so somebody write that book, please. <laughs> right? Yeah, or, or like build that design guideline system. That would be great. One thing that I've noticed and something that I've kind of tried to take on, but it's, I mean, it's really hard. I, ironically, the accessibility world on the web has an accessible problem. Not a lot of developers find the resources to be helpful or to be accessible. And I think that that's an issue. And one of the things that when I was diving into it really deep was like, I see this, this giant canyon between like, here is what you should do for best practices. Don't like use proper alt tags, do these things like what I would maybe consider like low hanging fruit, right? 
like add area hidden to this if you don't want it to be shown up or do these things to make sure that your color contrast pass. But then when you get like into the more complicated things that you have to rebuild, like in a complicated widget, I will always come back to a type ahead because everybody implements it and it's always implemented wrong and it's really hard to get right. It's super subtle. But when you jump into trying to recreate those things, because every team does, right? It's always part of everyone's design system is a select or a type ahead. You run into, you just fall off the cliff, off this canyon into this rut of like no information that kind of distills it into like, here's the problem. And when you do this, you need to have these area attributes that signal this to the screen reader for these semantic reasons. And when you do this, it's going to work in this assistive tech combo, but it won't work in this assistive tech combo. Here's what you do to work around that. Like those resources don't exist. That's that's that big middle canyon that I'm kind of like talking about. That's what people hire you for. Right. And I don't like that's great. I like money, but I really want people to do this easily and implement on the web. And it's that's really what I'm striving for. Right. Like I want I want everybody to do this really easily. (laughs) But then on the other side of the, the canyon, you have the spec. So like there's nothing in between that's kind of filling in the blank. Like accessibility is hard. It's a task things that we have to do but i don't believe it's harder than learning what like an async generator function is and when those came out like there were five blog posts from people that were like here's what really async generator functions are for you and what they mean and how you can use them right like i think we need those kind of blog posts and those kind of resources for accessibility you mentioned like semantic reasons and stuff. And, and one thing I've enjoyed in this conversation is how thinking about accessibility really leads you to the why of what you're doing. I've noticed this like uh, Twitter. Now, if I attach an image, it will be like, hey, add a description to your image. And Medium lets me do that. And, and that makes me really happy. And one thing it makes me do is I, I go to type the description of the image and it makes me realize this image is, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. You know, if I have a hard time writing a relevant description that conveys the point, maybe I didn't need that image. <laughs> right. So sometimes my caption is, medium likes it when I have an image. <laughs> yeah, it's like you can put a like a, a pretty image on a blog post that has nothing to do with it just because like all the platforms like you to have those. But if you try and write down, you know, you know, man in rowboat on lake. Like as the picture at the front top of your blog, but it's like, what the heck is that even there for? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it really makes you ask, how badly did I need a type ahead here? Yeah, yeah. Like, why am I writing a blog post about TypeScript and man rows boat cross lake is, is an image here? Hmm, how does this connect? <laughs> or, heaven forbid, a carousel. Carousels are the bane of my existence. Oh, <laughs> we have one on my company site at the moment, and I hate it so much. I haven't checked if it's gone yet, but I feel like one of my the legacy items that I left at Visa was killing off the carousel that they had. They had a carousel on Visa checkout for you to select through your cards and your addresses, and it was an accessibility nightmare. And it didn't need to be a carousel because it turns out people don't have more than two or three cards on their account. So it didn't really need to be paginated and didn't need to have that really complex interaction that comes with a carousel, right? This is also something that's fun about accessibility. Like, let's break down a carousel. You have the image that's in the middle. Then you have usually like a chevron to the left and a chevron on the right to go to the next and back. And then a lot of times underneath, they'll also have the dots that you can click to navigate that way. So if I were using just a keyboard, 
how does someone navigate this without uh, losing context? With home and end. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Well, also, uh, it's also auto advancing, so your context is changing every few seconds anyway. Exactly. Yeah, and that one's actually really difficult. The answer there, people that usually don't like it, is don't. Like, don't do time-based media, anything that has uh, a ticker on it, because you're not going to interact with the app the same speed as somebody else will. And that's true for everybody across all abilities. Yeah, if you're reading in another language, maybe it takes you twice as long to get down to that section to know what's going on, and then it disappears. Exactly. Then you're missing out, and you don't know. Like, you might miss out on a certain experience that somebody else got and they thought was awesome and you just totally missed it but yeah it was it was fun going through uh the the carousel and and getting to explain like while it seems like it's actually pretty simple it when you dig into the whole interaction how somebody has to to use this and it is their focus uh it falls apart and gets really complicated quickly like where does the focus go how do i make sure that when they i set the focus that they have the right context and if they go back they can hit the right keys to go back and forth and if they navigate um, i'm not stomping over other hot keys and stuff like there's there's a lot of things that you have to kind of consider as you implement custom things when you were for visa or whatever and this is like what you're into you're into this checkout screen then those like flashy sort of ooh, i get to like modify my context and then do this and then swish over here and that feels cool to you but other people are not into your checkout screen and so they don't want flashy context. They just want to get out of your check on checkout screen. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. And when you hit something that's hard to make accessible, that's a clue that you're entertaining yourself and not your customer. Right. It was a really neat interaction, but it wasn't critical to the checkout flow for them to actually give the money to the merchant, right? <laughs> yeah. And as a customer, I'm just like, let me give you my money. Duh! Please, just, just, it's like the fry meme. Take my money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've talked a lot about like really practical things, which is unusual for this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I actually didn't set out to do that. It was super interesting though. Uh, but before we go, I would like to ask about your transition that you just made at the front side. How's that going? What's that like to move into a, a, such a more businessy role? It's been a lot of fun. I've been reading a book recently called uh, Radical Candor. It's amazing. I've watched her talks. Uh, it's amazing. To, to kind of speak to where I'm going with that is like, it's a lot more management. I've always had interest in business. My dad uh, ran, he's an electrical contractor in Florida. Uh, I only ever knew him running his own business. I would go out there and help him, not necessarily help him, I guess, but like I would go out there and watch him like run payroll and, and go to the accountant and talk about taxes. And also, as a side, my parents called me the little old man because as a kid, those things actually did interest me, <laughs> weirdly. Like that was always something that was a part of my life. And I loved programming and I liked doing it. But two or three years in, I started to realize that programming wasn't the only thing I wanted to do right. I wanted to use programming as a tool to do other things that are cool in the world. The way I kind of put it is like I wanted to stop solving uh, Silicon Valley problems and solving real problems, right? Like I don't need like, I don't know, Uber for, for hot towels or whatever it is. Like, 
it's seriously not a problem that I care about solving. That in, in, that very much I feel like falls in the Silicon Valley yeah, <laughs> issues. For sure. <laughs> so I saw programming as a tool to be able to solve other problems that I really like. It wasn't dusting. And that's kind of where I went to like Visa to take over like the accessibility uh, work. And then uh, the opportunity opened up for me to be able to, to do more business things that, at a company that I really loved. And uh, I was all for it. So now it's just a lot of like uh, biz dev, um, you know, sales calls, going to have coffee with people, making connections. Um, and also, I don't lose the technology aspect of it because we're we're a UI consultancy, right? Like we're diving in deep into uh, technical problems that I get to like kind of be a part of. I'm not the one implementing them anymore, but I'm still around it in my spare time. Like I, I wrote a React Native app two weeks ago just to, to the itch that scratch or scratch that itch, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and build something. And it, and it solved a problem for me, right? Like I needed to track the medication that I was taking. Like don't take too much of it. And it solved a real problem. I got to do it and it was fun. So it, it's just been a lot more management and business things. And I still get the code too. So it's fun. Sounds ideal to me. Sweet. How many people are at the front side? Right now we are 10 strong. So we're, we're a small team. <laughs> yeah, but that's the kind of team where everybody knows everybody and you really can support each other. Yeah. We love supporting each other. We love pairing. We love discussing things that are, as appropriately named for this podcast, greater than code. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a family-like atmosphere, I think. And that that's at least what I'm trying to, to bring. And people caring about people is the most important thing. If anybody out there knows who Brandon Hayes is, I when I was working as a developer at the front side, when he still worked at the front side, he, had, he said something to me that really left an impact on me. And I still like think about it and relish in it, I guess, uh, every day. And it was it was on a project that we had, and I didn't feel like I was doing too well. I was kind of like stuck in the mud, basically. I was going nowhere. I was in neutral and just doing nothing. I mean, maybe nothing is a bad way, but like I was not feeling great about what I was doing. And he's like, hey, let's go for a walk. And then he kind of walked me through. Um, he's like, what's the worst thing that could happen if you fail? And I was like, I, I don't know. Maybe we lose the client. And he's like, maybe. That's not that big of a deal. I mean, it would be a big deal, but it's not like we're going to fire you over that. We are investing in Rob, the person, not Rob, uh, the developer. And right there, it just made me feel so much better because, one, I had I basically had a license to, to fail, right? I was okay with that. And that's actually the biggest blocker that I had there was like, I was too afraid to fail. I did not want to fail. And two, it told me that they cared about me, me as a person, not like I wasn't this expendable asset that was just making them money. I wasn't just somebody that was doing something that made them happy. Like they cared about me. And that's, that's kind of something that I try to take to everybody at the front side. Um, cause I know how, how impactful that was for me on that day, for me on that project and me and my career and my life. Really. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, the company treating you like that, like a, like a fully fledged person that they care about probably transfers through you into the way you care about the customers that you were working with. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It totally reshaped my views and thinking in a really good way. <laughs> it's just, it's shocking how much burden or, or I don't know how else to describe that, that you put on yourself from not wanting to fail and feeling too afraid to fail, right? Like you actually start moving 
quickly into the direction of failing because of that. Ooh, yeah, that's one of those circles, self-fulfilling prophecy things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was going through, uh, I got my motorcycle's license two, three years ago. And one of the big things that always came up was target fixation. And I feel like that's what I was on, on failing. I was just fixated on, tar- on, on failing. And what happens when you're riding a motorcycle and you like, let's say you're going around a corner and you see a sign and you just start staring at the sign. Oh, that means you hit the sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so don't do that. so at the end of every episode we like to talk about reflections which are the things that we found particularly interesting or impactful that were discussed during the episode there were quite a few actually from this episode but i think the one that is coming to mind right now is the um thinking about people problems as engineering problems not in that they can be solved mechanistically but in that there is a solution to them like when you think about engineering problems you think well there's we just got to work it out and there'll be a solution rather than this is so squishy and indefinable that I don't think I'll ever figure it out. And if you think of it as something you can achieve, then you much like the target fixation, you're focused on getting through and, you know, it may not be a perfect solution, but by solving it, suddenly you get better at solving it. And the next time you solve it, it'll be better the next with the next person. And I think that's a really a powerful mindset for approaching these things. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm happy that that was the takeaway there. <laughs> it's, it was always really hard for me to to think about solving those problems because I would always be like, exactly like this is this is so huge. I don't think I'll be able to even take a first twack at it. Right? It it was hard, <laughs> but it just gave me a good framing for breaking it down. Yeah, and you don't have to solve the whole problem. You just like take the next step to make it better. And what you just said, John, in particular. When you do this, when you make the effort to work on the problems that you think are too big to solve, you get better at solving those problems. And eventually, they become the kind of problems that you can actually do something with. But if you don't try, if you're so afraid of failing that you do nothing, you don't develop that. We have two kittens at the moment, and one of them is like really agile and adventurous. For a tiny kitten, she makes some pretty amazing jumps, but she also falls down a lot which is hilarious. But because she keeps trying this, she keeps getting better at it. And meanwhile, the other kitten just doesn't try as much, right? Just doesn't, it doesn't get the spectacular failures, but also he's not getting better at jumping. So we know it's very obvious which one is going to be a fat cat and which one is going to be on top of the fridge in a few months. Um, These things, it's another circle. If you try at something, you do get better at it, and then you're not afraid to try, which was not my reflection. That was my reflection on your reflection. (laughs) We're going to go meta. Yeah. Yeah, We never do that around here. (laughs) Okay, but I I thought it was really interesting what you said about the front side as a human company that cares about the people in it. And I think that's, that's really important right now, especially in software development, where it really matters who is doing the work. If nothing else, we're really hard to replace because the, the knowledge we have is really hard to replace. And also because they're just there's a lot of demand at the moment, which I think is forcing us as an industry to realize how much it matters to care about an individual person. Because the systems we form, where the front side is a higher level system formed of 10 humans and various other non-human assets and things. Right. Yeah. The, the front side is formed of these particular 10 humans. And 
they're not just replaceable with another human. So it's necessary for the system to care about the people, which causes the people to care about the system. And then this circles, and the result of that is a coherent firm that's more than a name. It's more than a bank account. It's really an entity that other firms can partner with. Yeah, exactly. And then we find meaning in it because we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And meanwhile, the front side is part of networks of firms that are then making more websites accessible for everyone, among other things. In my opinion, this, this is how we find meaning in life, is by becoming part of something bigger that in turn cares about us. I love that. I love how you tied it back to the meaning of life. That was <laughs> powerful there. Lately. <laughs> you heard it here first. It's, it's not actually 42. It's, <laughs> it's 92. <laughs> uh, no, that's, I love that. I have uh, a reflection. Thinking about the interactions we have with people and like maybe even context through like an API and the human API. Like you said, John, like I really want to go back and watch your talk on that because that that was super interesting to think about. And that's something that I want to explore some more. I'll post a link. Greater Than Code is supported through listener contributions to our Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com slash greater than code, all one word. And contributing even $1 a month will get you access to our private Slack community, which gets you access to all these fascinating people that are in this community and that love listening to this podcast. So it's a really fantastic place to hang out. And I'd like to thank Rob DeLuca for being on the show today. Yes, thank you, Rob, for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. This was awesome. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>